from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 14th. Today, the history of tear gas in America and why law enforcement seems to keep forgetting the lessons of the past. So, Lena Muhammad, producer for Post Reports, I have been hearing about this story that you've been working on about tear gas. And I'm just really curious, like, why did you want to look more into tear gas? Yeah, so I think these days when we think about tear gas, like, we don't think twice about it. It's just everywhere. I mean, we saw it last week on January 6th, the uh, siege on the Capitol. We saw it used a lot over last summer during the civil rights protests after the death of George Floyd. And I think a lot of people, myself included, just forget that, you know, there was a period in history where using tear gas wasn't as acceptable as it is today. I've been covering police since the 1990s. And at that time, it was tear gas was generally considered, you know, sort of an outmoded and, and outdated police tool. I spoke to Devlin Barrett. He covers law enforcement for The Post. And he told me that tear gas first became really popular in the U.S. during the civil rights protests and the anti-war protests of sort of the 60s and 70s. This is around the time of the Vietnam War. It would have been, been generally abandoned as something that wasn't considered effective, was considered in some ways self-defeating. And, you know, a lot of police departments talked as if, you know, they had sort of evolved beyond needing a, such a blunt instrument like tear gas. So tear gas is actually not a gas at all. It's a bunch of kind of teeny droplets of liquid that can be dispersed in different ways. And the reason that we think of it as a gas is because it's normally dispersed in like what looks to us like a big cloud that we see, like a cloud of smoke. Um, but it can also be sprayed um, as we've as we see in different kinds of aerosols. This is Anna Feigenbaum. She's a writer and a researcher, and she's written a lot about the history of chemical weapons, specifically tear gas. And it's a, uh, a poison. It's, it's a chemical weapon. Um, and it is designed to cause both physical and psychological torture by affecting various systems in the body. So everything from the nasal passage and the eyes that we most commonly associate it with to also the respiratory system. And it was also designed to be psychologically tormenting. So we were supposed to feel like we were dying so that we had to get away or escape from this feeling of the gas. And that is why it is a dispersal weapon. So what I've been thinking about a lot recently is the ways in which riot control technologies in the U.S. context, but I imagine this is probably true in other national contexts. So ways in which the history of U.S. riot control and in particular the U.S. development and use of tear gas are very intertwined with white supremacy and rises in white supremacist movements. So we see these surges in the 1920s, same time that tear gas gets brought out in the market. The guy, General Amos Fries, who was the big pusher for the commercialization of tear gas, who was the head of the Chemical Warfare Service, part of the U.S. Uh, military. He was affiliated to the KKK. He had uh, very outspoken ideas about who was and wasn't a real American. He was... Wait, so the person who brought tear gas yes. to the U. Wow. Yeah. 
And this isn't like a hidden, you know, it's the 1920s. So this isn't like a hidden history. You know, none of this is like, is there's no doublespeak, right? There's no Orwellian doublespeak like we get from politicians now. It is, it's just full, full out. These, these are, you know, foreigners, communists, Jews, no good. You know, that this is Negroes, no good. Mm. Right. So like all the people listing them off. So you can like read his speeches where he's just like saying this stuff, you know, and and this is why he thought we needed tear gas. We needed tear gas because we needed to preserve America. And what he meant by America was a white supremacist America. So what do we know about what happens to your body when it's exposed to tear gas? So we know that there can be some serious after effects as well as some longer term injuries. It can cause different kinds of skin irritation. It can cause respiratory problems. It can cause digestive problems. There have been links between miscarriages and excessive tear gas exposure, as well as uh, between other, other kinds of influences on sort of menstrual cycles and and reproductive health. Those areas remain understudied. In general, there is not a lot of funding that goes into the study of the health effects of tear gas outside of the context of military labs. So tear gas is a chemical weapon and it's banned in war. And so I, what I don't understand is how is it that law enforcement can still use it today? Well, there's nothing that says law enforcement can't use it. And what law enforcement will say is that the, the version of tear gas that is used today by police departments is a much milder and less dangerous version of tear gas than was used in decades past. And there's some truth to that. But there are other risks and challenges associated with tear gas, including to safety. So one of the primary examples is the siege at Waco, where FBI and ATF agents basically surrounded a compound of cult members in an armed standoff. And when they used tear gas to go inside and to try to disrupt and drive out the people in that building, uh, there's fairly good evidence to suggest that those tear gas canisters actually started a fire. And that fire ended up consuming the pretty much the whole structure and killed a lot of people. The other thing I'm curious about is like, is there an overarching federal strategy from the U.S. government when it comes to regulating the use of tear gas by our law enforcement agencies? No, there, there isn't an overarching federal strategy on these questions because so much of American law enforcement is localized, meaning police departments in cities or states make decisions on their own. And the, the, the federal government can sort of monitor that and investigate incidents when they think a, a local police department has done something wrong. But it's not like the, the federal government sets policies for state and local police departments. That's not how law enforcement in America works. The Justice Department is not in charge of local police. Uh, and there are sometimes conflicts between local police and federal agents on a lot of law enforcement questions, including the use of force. Hmm. And so then... What is the argument for using it? So the argument for using it is you can disperse crowds well with tear gas, meaning it's such an irritant. It's so blinding and maybe overstating its light, but it's so 
if you get a good cloud of it in your face, it's hard to see, it's hard to breathe, and it's your natural human impulse takes over to just move away from there. So that's obviously helpful to the dispersing of crowds. But here's how it doesn't work in dispersing crowds. It scatters people, but it, it's it's a direction. It's sort of a directionless use of force in a crowd. So you, it's very hard to control where people run once you scatter them. The other problem is people once once people in a protest realize what's happening, they will often throw the the gas canisters back at the police, which means that the police are then dealing with tear gas more than the protesters in some cases. And in some cases, you don't even need someone to throw it back at you because the wind does that for the protesters. So there are noted cases in which tear gas was fired on a crowd and the wind just pushed the tear gas right back into the officers. So using tear gas to disperse crowds during protests is obviously nothing new. I mean, as you mentioned, we saw it in the U.S. in the anti-war protests back during the 60s, during the Vietnam War. We saw it during protests in Hong Kong recently, as well as in Egypt and what became known as the Arab Spring. But I'm curious, was there a moment in the U.S. where law enforcement had second thoughts about using this tactic for crowd control? There was a key moment in the late 1990s when individuals in Seattle were protesting around economic issues, and it turned into almost a daily or near daily confrontation between protesters and heavily armed up police and riot gear. And that was where you saw a lot of tear gas being used night after night or day after day to try to dispel those, for lack of a better term, hardened protesters. The event that Devlin is talking about happened in 1999. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Ambassador Barshevsky, thank you for your remarks and your work. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, a very large delegation from our administration here today, and I hope it's evidence to you of our was during the World Trade Organization Ministerial Conference. It's basically a big gathering of the top decision makers in the World Trade Organization that happens every other year. Seattle was too small for for WTO. The voice you're hearing is Norm Stamper. He was Seattle's police chief at the time. But that didn't meet the, uh, you know, the the, the the parochial concerns of my mayor and other elected officials who said, oh, stop saying that. You know, we're not too small. We can handle this. I was in Seattle working for a local public radio station called KUOW. And that's Orlando de Guzman. He's now a freelance cinematographer. I was really just kind of starting out as a general assignment reporter there. And we knew that the WTO was going to happen uh, months in advance. There was a lot of preparations for this. It escalated and kind of peaked around uh, November 30th. There were a couple of skirmishes between police and protesters. Uh, but it wasn't until Tuesday, uh, now known forever, I'm sure, as in 30, November 30th, everything turned chaotic and, and frankly, horrific. A good rule of thumb that when the weather is bad, there is less likelihood of a large outdoor gathering being successful, not in Seattle today. There were so many people upset with the World Trade Organization, the WTO, 
which is meeting there this week, that opening the conference today was a very dicey affair. The opening ceremonies had to be cancelled. What the city hadn't anticipated was the number of protesters who would flood Seattle. There were anti-globalization protesters, labor unions, student groups, environmentalists, and there was also some anarchists. And it all came to a head on November 30th, what Norm just referred to as N30. It was a Tuesday. Please form a chain around the Delicates Hotel, the Roosevelt Hotel. So we had a group of protesters who uh, decided to occupy uh, the intersection of 6th and Union. It's right in the heart of downtown. It is immediately adjacent to the Sheraton Hotel, where many WTO ministers and other uh, dignitaries from around the world were in fact being uh, accommodated. There were numerous reporters from around the globe, and as it turned out, tens of thousands of anti-globalization protesters in Seattle. Just say no to the WTO! Just say no to the WTO! Just say no to the WTO! They knew that there would be protests. So Seattle PD, led by Norm, met with a few leaders of the movements. And according to what Norm told me, they agreed that the police would help choreograph mass arrests of the protesters. For him, it was a win-win kind of scenario. The protesters would get media attention, and the police would still be keeping order. Well, very, very quickly, we realized that we were completely outnumbered, incredibly so. I mean, we had uh, 900 Seattle police officers uh, on, on who ordinarily would have been on duty for this special detail. We added an additional several dozen who were in detective positions and so forth, put them into uniform, got them out on the streets. In the end, we had about 1,300 cops in a city that was being visited by tens of thousands of demonstrators from around the world. So we essentially said, all bets are off. Uh, we're sorry that we have to do this, but we have to do it. And and therefore, we're going to ask you uh, to get up out of that intersection. The demonstrators had locked arms and sat down uh, to occupy that intersection. Your attention. This is the Seattle Police Department. I voluntarily ask for your cooperation in moving at least 40 we saw hordes of people all over the downtown area. The most, uh, uh, from a police point of view, uh, the most uh, problematic and troublesome for us is that they had blocked an intersection that we were convinced was vital to the interests of public safety. Had somebody been bleeding out, from a, a, a shooting, a knifing, uh, had been in some form of medical distress, giving birth to a baby, in cardiac arrest. Uh, we could not move an aid car, an ambulance. We could not move a fire engine, a police car through that crowd. And, and we deemed it a key strategic intersection. So we concluded, my, my field commander, my operations commander uh, concluded that we needed to clear the intersection. Um, today I would ask, did we really need to clear that intersection? 
And I'll leave that as a rhetorical question for the moment. Uh, but what I can tell you is that I was convinced on that morning, wet, rainy, windy morning in Seattle, typical uh, late November morning. And uh, I was convinced that the conversation between my field and my operations commander that I was monitoring over the radio uh, was valid, was on point, and was raising critical uh, uh, sort of tactical challenges uh, for us and how most effectively to meet those challenges. I blessed that decision uh, to use chemical agents uh, on, on Tuesday morning. This is gonna make people more enraged than ever. You can believe that. This will never end now. Never. What they're trying to do to us and what those gendarmes against the people are trying to do is criminal beyond belief. That's my feeling. And it's not gonna end, it's gonna grow. It's gonna grow and multiply. I remember going close to around the Pike Place Market, kind of around that area of, of, of downtown Seattle. And I, I think that's the place where I first got like a whiff of tear gas. I mean, I remember it was so notable that I called the news station back and said that they're, they're using tear gas. Police are now telling the crowd to move back. The chemical urgent may be used. The crowd is not moving back. They've sat down on the pavement. They're holding their ground. Police are saying they're going to use chemical spray, chemical agents, if they don't move. Police are now moving in. They've put on their gas masks. They're moving toward the crowd. They've given the thumbs up signal. The crowd continues. They're sitting down. They're continuing to sit down on the pavement. They're not moving. A lot of tension. They've released tear gas. Police are now moving in. There's smoke in the street. A lot of confusion. The crowd is starting to move back. There's a thick cloud of smoke in front of me. <coughs> That's KUW's Orlando de Guzman. Earlier today, downtown, police had cleared the demonstrators gathered in front of the Sheraton Hotel while tear gas engulfed the crowd at 6th Avenue, police say they did not fire People were calling it different names. They called them smoke bombs, tear gas. Uh, a lot of people didn't really know what it was. But it was, you know, it was clearly tear gas. It was some kind of very kind of overpowering irritant that uh, we all felt. And, you know, this was a time as well when I was uh, 26 uh, working for KUOW. Like, nobody was prepared for any kind of civil unrest. We didn't have, you know any safety equipment. We didn't have gas masks or bulletproof vests or anything like that that you see that's fairly standard now for news media. The police response to the WTO protests in 1999 went down as an example of how not to police in protest situations. Norm Stamper left his position afterwards. The city and downtown businesses were left with millions of dollars in damages and lost sales. Lawsuits were filed. It also just wasn't effective. It didn't disperse the crowd. It just created more chaos. But for Norm Stamper at the time, he was thinking about the conference attendees. There were important people in town for this conference. Bill Clinton, Madeleine Albright, and Kofi Annan, just to name a few. And there was a very thin line of sheriff's deputies trying to keep protesters 
out of that parking lot because that gives them immediate access to elevators that would then serve the all, all floors, basically, of the Sheraton Hotel. So that would put them into the hotel where WTO ministers and others are staying. And we felt that that was kind of an oil and water situation and that we ought to do what we can to prevent that. And all of that's a major, major challenge for us. So when the time comes to say, let's move them out of this intersection, uh, it began with warnings. Uh, It began with a request, with a plea. We explained why we felt we needed to to, uh, reclaim that intersection uh, and create some freedom of movement in that specific area. Uh, I heard the argument being made. I went to the far side of the intersection in order to hear Jim Pugil on his bullhorn uh, declare an unlawful assembly and order people out of the intersection. He repeated the warning, I don't know how many times, numerous times. Each time was clear. It was crisp. There's a lot of chanting going on. There's drumming going on. This is a major, major demonstration. But uh, his PA announcements are very clear, very crisp, unambiguous. You need to clear the intersection or we will make arrests. I voluntarily ask for your cooperation in moving it. That evolved into we will use tear gas as we realized that making arrests was tactically not at all feasible. We did not have enough people to do that. I remember the cops were doing, the police were doing this thing where they would fire the gas and kind of retreat. And 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 so there was just like a lot of tear gas blowing around the downtown area of Seattle. It, it was almost like the tear gas was, was, was used as a deterrent, but also the police weren't exactly capable of holding the defensive lines that they had set up. So they would fire tear gas, they would get pushed back, they would fire more tear gas. You know, it, it didn't exactly completely work to disperse the crowds at the time. In fact, it made them more agitated. You need water for your eyes. Yes, yes. Your head straight back. Yes, yes, yes. Been a lot of things going on. We're going to go downtown first to Orlando de Guzman. Ken, I'm at the corner of 6th and Union, and uh, right in front of me here, about three feet away, there's a, a group of protesters, protesters who are now bound and have been arrested. Police are doing mass arrests right now. There are, there are at least a dozen arrests. Uh, wait, the police are asking me to move away now, but... Uh, Okay, um, uh, they, they have a, a very thick uh, phalanx of police officers right now. Uh, they're, they're pulling people away. Uh, I, I hear people screaming. Uh, they're, they're, they say their eyes hurt. Uh, it looks like people are in pain. You know, after the WTO, I remember there was kind of a big reassessment of police tactics and, 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 and trying to figure out all these lessons learned, what we could have done differently. And even the former police chief of Seattle, Norm Stamper, said that it was a huge mistake to use that kind of force on, you know, mostly peaceful protesters uh, at the WTO. Nowadays, you know, it seems like it's a 
pretty normal, you know, for police to dispense tear gas, you know, almost immediately. We used so much tear gas on November 30th that we were very much in danger of running out of it. And we sent out pleas and we sent, uh, uh, as I recall, planes or uh, trucks or cars over to eastern Washington and, and, and rounded up as much tear gas as we could possibly find uh, in order to use on city streets in Seattle. Oh, wow. Looking, looking at your decision now, you know, today, more than 20 years later, how, how do you feel about it now? It was it was the worst decision, uh, certainly tactical decision of my police career. If I had it to do over again, uh, and I'm very glad to be retired. I'm very glad people call me and say, aren't you glad you're not in Seattle in uh, 2020 or in Washington, D.C. in 2021? And the short answer is, sure, I am, because I spent 34 years in the business. I'm now approaching the whole issue of policing from a different perspective. But I wish to hell that I had that decision to make over again. In in recent years, we saw a rise in, in law enforcement use of tear gas to disperse crowds. The biggest example, most recent one, is the George Floyd protests, where we saw law enforcement agencies across the country in like more than 50 cities, I believe, used tear gas against those protesters. How how did that make you feel? Um, horrible, in a word. I was wrong in 1999. The decision we made to use tear gas on nonviolent, non-threatening protesters was as wrong as it can get from my point of view. It becomes crucial, I think, to, to, to develop this willingness to look at the effects of tear gas, not just in the moment. We know it'll clear an intersection. That's uncontested. What we don't know is, and shame on us for not knowing it, is at what cost. What is it going to cost us? Our reputation, our standing in the community, our relations, uh, particularly with young people and poor people and people of color. So hearing about all this reporting on Seattle, what what do you think the big takeaway is? I think what I find um, most disturbing about this piece is um, sort of this collective amnesia that U.S. police departments suffer from, right? Um, you know, they go these through these periods of using tear gas heavily on protesters to, and to disperse crowds. And then something happens and they realize, oh, this is actually not that great and it really doesn't work. It's as if just they forget and they go back to using it again. And that's sort of how Devlin, he's the reporter who covers law enforcement for The Post, that's how he described it to me. One of the ways in which they ultimately found it didn't work was that because when you're using tear gas, one of the things you have to do for your police officers is you have to put those big bulky uh, masks on their faces. 
But one of the things that happens to humans when you put those big bulky masks on their faces is they can't see very well. They can't hear very well. And suddenly the, the degree of threat and danger perceived by that person goes way up. So what they came to find after the dust had settled and the smoke had cleared in Seattle was that the use of gas not only wasn't very effective at dispersing the crowd, the use of gas seemed to intensify the conflict because the officers wearing the masks felt less in control and more threatened by what was happening around them. And things got more violent just because of the wearing of those, those bulky masks. And so a lot of people were, at the time in law enforcement, were surprised to see how much the Seattle police were leaning on gas to try to solve their problem. And a lot of police departments, including Seattle, came away from that experience thinking, well, I think we've relearned the lesson that gas is not great. Hmm. I think also the, the, the other thing that happens when, when you're using tear gas, as, I mean, as in the case in Seattle, it was a largely nonviolent, is that as a protester, you're standing there, you're, you're nonviolently demonstrating, but yet you're met with this force. It's almost like your reaction is to like, okay, well, now, now things are going to get violent. <laughs> and so I, I wonder how much of that also happened, you know, in addition to the mask effect. There's, there's a lot of that. I think, I think, you know, when you talk about how do you control a large crowd, what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, one of the challenges of gas is that if, let's say you're successful and you scatter, you manage, if you're the police and you manage to scatter uh, some of the crowd you want to scatter, where are those people scattering to? What are they going to do? What are they going to be looking for if they're a block away from you or two blocks away from you? Um, you know, those are all sort of secondary problems that using tear gas can create because you no longer because you've just sort of scattered a bunch of people who are now um, in many cases pretty angry after Seattle when was the next time that we saw tear gas being used heavily well what really struck me after Seattle was there there's it seemed like there was a long period in US law enforcement where police departments generally moved further and further away from using tear gas And then you get to a series of protests that were going on in Ferguson, Missouri, over the police killing of an unarmed black man, Michael Brown. And I was frankly surprised, just as a cops reporter, I was surprised how much the local police department used tear gas. It, it, you know, the conventional wisdom accepted by a lot of law enforcement officials for a long time by that point was that this stuff doesn't work and in some ways makes your job harder and makes the problem worse. And, but they used tear gas a lot. What was interesting to me is that Ferguson also was sort of uh, a moment when I think the rest of a lot of the rest of the law enforcement community in America was watching Ferguson. And Ferguson, I think, maybe even subconsciously, somehow suddenly made it more acceptable again to use tear gas because you started seeing it getting used uh, in other large crowd situations, in other protest situations. And that was frankly, not something I expected to come back just because of the lessons of, of prior decades and prior years. But it came back in a big way. That was enough to shoot me. This is so offensive for no reason. Like, they have on full riot here. We've just been here marching around the city with signs up. And even now that we're throwing, what, water, occasional water bottles, they've been tear gassing us, pepper spray. Someone said that they got hit with a little rubber all day. This has been all day. It's not right. Because we're not really aggressive enough 
for this. There's no need for them to have come out here and riot gear automatically. Police cars have been patrolling the city all day, and we're just not, there's just no need for it. So they've come out here with hordes, a whole army. What are you out here with an army against yourself? What is this? Look at this. You got I think one of the one of the ways in which people have vivid memories even even today are when federal officials decided to clear the park and the street around the White House uh, back in June of of 2020 because people were protesting and and basically the Trump administration was was fed up and wanted them moved. So those images of tear gas being fired at groups of protesters right outside the White House, uh, I think are burned into a lot of folks' minds. I think they sadly, you know, sort of define the year for some folks in terms of how ugly and confrontational and dangerous uh, 2020 was and how, you know, even at, at the highest levels of the government basically has embraced the use of tear gas as a means of crowd control. Uh, which a lot of professional law enforcement officials will tell you is just a bad idea. What do you think the story of tear gas and its uses tell us about the state of policing in the U.S.? I think it speaks to the degree of just distrust and panic and fear, uh, both of police and by police. I think, you know, you use tear gas. I, I would say as a general rule, most law enforcement officials would say you use tear gas when you think you don't have any other options left. And so one of the things that's interesting to me about the places that use it very quickly is, well, wait, are you saying that like when the protests show up, like their very existence before any violence has happened, before any vandalism has happened, their very existence is sort of, you know, high level threat in your mind? So I, I think it speaks to a degree, it, it's, it's, to me, tear gas is one of the ways in which a lot of citizens and a lot of police uh, just don't trust each other right now. Devlin Barrett is a national security reporter for The Post. Lena Mohammed is a producer for Post Reports. The story was edited by our senior producer, Rena Flores. And that tape you heard of the 1999 WTO protests was from a documentary produced by the Seattle Public Radio station, KUOW. It's called KUOW at 65, The Battle in Seattle. If you want to listen to the whole thing, find a link in today's show notes. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We love hearing your thoughts about the stories on our show. Post on Twitter with the hashtag Post Reports, join our Facebook group, or send us an email at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 